This is The Guardian. Photos published this week from the Ukrainian suburb Bucha have shocked the world. Today, the story of just one street, what its residents saw and how they survived. Before we start, a heads up. This episode contains graphic descriptions of war and violence that some might find distressing. It was the fourth day of Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine. Russian troops were moving on the capital, Kyiv. Their path took them past the house of Serhii Savenko. He lived in a suburb called Bucha. The morning of the 27th of February was a astonishing and ultimately murderous one for Serhii Savenko, who lives with his mother, Larissa, at number 35 Volksana Street. At 10 past nine, he watched aghast as armoured vehicle after armoured vehicle rolled past his house, 70 he counted, with Russian soldiers walking alongside. All of a sudden, the first missile from the Ukrainian defenders comes in and wipes out his shed. <laughs> Much more accurate from then on, completely destroying the convoy of Russian armour, searingly white-hot metal thrown into the air. The soldiers were cut in half by the Ukrainian artillery. Then the Russians retreated. They tried to turn their armoured vehicles round in complete panic. Some of them failed. The Ukrainian missiles and artillery kept on raining down. Then it went quiet for a little bit. The Russians came back an hour later to retrieve their dead, and retrieve what vehicles they could retrieve. And then they basically entrenched themselves with artillery in the front gardens in some of the buildings that survived this initial onslaught. And the war had started in future. Some video today, which is pretty extraordinary, which shows in a western suburb of Kiev called Bucha a column of Russian military vehicles, armored personnel carriers that appear to have been completely destroyed by Ukrainian forces. Now, that just gives you a sense of what a fight the Ukrainians are putting up. These are the kinds of news reports that emerged about what had happened in Bucha that morning based on videos like this one, shot by a resident, of the destruction of Serhii Savenko Street. The guy filming is cursing the Russians for invading and the Ukrainians for shelling Voxelna Street, completely levelling it. Soon after, the internet stopped working in Bucha. Serhii and his neighbours were cut off and under occupation. Like everyone on the street, if they had a basement, that's where they went. And they very, very rarely came out of their basements. People were there for a month hiding away. They feared that the war was coming and they kept some food back and water and stuff. But the Russians knew they were there. There were two who parked themselves in his front garden, built a fire. One of them looked down in the basement, saw them, said, just be quiet. I'm a nice guy, but not all the Russian soldiers are, and they will put you on your knees and shoot you. 
So he kept in that basement and he kept quiet. At one point he asked the Russians, can I please light a fire so I can boil water, I can cook food, and they were absolutely no. That way you'll be able to signal to the Ukrainians about where we are somehow, you know, a smoke signal or something. So no, they just sat in there and they just lived it out, head down and hope for the best. What Serhii and other residents of Bucha would go through over the next month was a mystery. Until last week. As Ukrainian forces have re-entered areas close to the capital, Kiev, after the Russians retreated, they have reported finding hundreds of bodies and mass graves in the town of Bucha. As the Russians pulled out of areas surrounding Kiev, the Ukrainian army has entered, and so have journalists like The Guardian's Daniel Boffy. What happened in Bucha and dozens of other suburbs around Kyiv has been revealed this week to a horrified world that's now scrambling to find the right response and wondering what else is out there waiting to be found. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the story of Voxelna Street in Bucha and the week the world woke up to Russian war crimes in Ukraine. Dan, when the reports began emerging over the weekend of atrocities committed by Russian troops against civilians in Bucha, you were in Kyiv for The Guardian, and your first instinct was to get there. How did you do it? Well, yeah, there were many, many checkpoints on the road to Bucha. I think we must have gone through 10 or 15, and each one, they wanted to know where we're going and who we were. And as soon as you said you're a British journalist, they couldn't be more delighted to let us through because they wanted what was emerging there to be seen by everybody, to be heard by everybody. And very quickly along that road, E40, we saw extraordinary things. I saw probably maybe 25, 30 cars crushed, just completely caved in. It was almost like it was a giant had stomped down that motorway. You see tanks, armoured vehicles, supermarkets, petrol stations, homes, apartments, all hollowed out, blackened, charred, just a horrendous mess. Strong smell of smoke and burnt oil. It's quite kind of overwhelming, really, to see that level of violence, because you know this is all so fresh. It was just in the last two, three days that the Russians had withdrawn, and a lot of people died on the road we were driving down. We are in Bucha now. We're in Bucha now, yeah. yeah. So this is, a, this is a McDonald's, and the, the flat, of Taras flat is very close. Oh, this is where the, yeah, uh, the, the gentleman yes. was killed. Yeah. The story I'd done on the weekend, an elderly man had walked up to a checkpoint at the very first McDonald's restaurant we saw as we drove into Bucha, and this man had basically confronted a Russian soldier. Locals said, oh, you know what old men are like in Ukraine. Strong characters. And he was evidently a strong character. And he said something aggressive to the Russian soldier. So the Russian soldier shot him in the head. The old man was next to his wife. His wife screamed, why did you do that? And begged to be able to take the body away. And they refused. The soldier told this old lady, you want to lie down with him or you can walk away? And so she walked away. And the first thing I saw was, entering the town was that McDonald's restaurant and it makes it feel very real. He was killed just here. 
It sounds absolutely horrific, but give us a sense, what kind of place was Bucha only a few weeks ago before this war? It's almost a suburb of Kyiv. It's a satellite town, but there's not much between the capital and Bucha. It's 17 miles northwest. It's where people go when they can't afford Kyiv or they just want a quieter life. So a lot of the people I spoke to actually were in their 60s and it's green and lots of trees, but there were no trees when I got there. I saw no leaves. Um, it's spring, but I saw no flowers. There was no colour. It was just grey, black or white. White because the metal had burnt white hot and ash was left. And can you take us through what you actually saw when you got there? So we arrive in the town, we park up, we see an old lady outside an apartment block, talk to her largely because we wanted to know where we were, um, there was no internet connection. The Russians, the first thing they do in all occupied towns is they go for gas, electricity and any kind of internet, they want to cut you off. And we were looking for, the Guardian print edition had splashed a, a very powerful photograph of a street which was just destroyed, which is a muddy mess, armoured vehicles overturned and all the rest of it. And it sort of told the story of destruction of Vladimir Putin's war very evocatively. Yeah, I know that picture. The street looks like something out of World War I, just mud and rubble where there used to be houses and twisted metal everywhere, just everything destroyed as far as you can see. What did you expect to find there when you went? We didn't actually know where this street was, and neither did the picture desk or the news desk, and AFP journalists had taken it. So I had to find it, which you think is quite simple, but if you haven't got internet, and everyone's confused and scared, and they've just emerged from their basements, which is how it felt. The people of Bucha were just emerging from their basements, and they were kind of blinking in the sunlight. It's actually harder than it should be, but we thought we found it. So we walked down that street, the scene is horrific. Burnt out vehicles either side. Um, I've been into some of the houses and the blood of Russian soldiers is everywhere. I actually didn't think anyone would be there. You look at the street and think, how on earth could anyone still live here? But then this man in his 40s came out who, he was jabbering. He couldn't stop talking. He was making very little sense. But it turns out he lived at the very top house just at where we'd arrived, where we parked up, number 26. And we tried to calm him down. You know, where do you live? He said, oh, I live here with two other people. We, 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 we survived. We, well, it was three. We survived. We survived. And, and I was like, okay, so where are your other two? Oh, oh they're, they're, down, they're, they're down in the bunker. They're down in the basement. They weren't, actually. He took us to the garden of that front house and around the back. And the people he'd survived with were actually sat in the garden having a cup of tea, which they had to boil on a fire, but they're having a nice cup of tea. In fact, they offered me tea or coffee. Um, it was a really quite a bizarre scene. And then you got talking to them. And I was just astonished to be told that much of the damage that we saw in that photograph when I was seeing for the first time in person was the work of an extraordinary 30 minutes of devastation on the morning of February the 27th, starting with Savenko's shed in his back garden and then escalating to be in the entire road. So we talked to them in remarkably good spirits. There were tears at times 
and they very kindly, when I asked them whether they might sort of act as a bit of a guide to me, they did that they were very kind. And where did they take you? What did they show you? So we walked all the way to the very top of the street, which is where the original photograph had been taken. I wanted to sort of start there. So then a few more people came out, quite a lot of been evacuated, you know, at various points, but quite a lot of people still lived there in their basements. One of the first people we met was a lady called Zenaida, 62 years old. She was standing outside her house, number 31, and she was devastated and wanted people to listen to her story. Uh, I found her utterly heartbreaking, to be honest. She hadn't left her basement for 13 days. And she said, my son-in-law, my son-in-law, the Russians killed my son-in-law. He was such a good man, he was such a good husband. And we talked her through what happened and it emerged that he had left his house a few weeks previously on the instruction of his wife to go pick up a few things from the neighbours. In fact, she gave him a note of things to pick up, like pills and groceries from the fridge, because the neighbours had left and so therefore was stuff that could be useful for those who were remaining. And so she had that note in her hand. She said, yes, my daughter sent him out to get this stuff a few weeks ago and, and then he disappeared, he didn't come back. And I came out of the cellar where I've been since the 5th of March and yesterday the Ukrainian army found my son-in-law's body. And it was just around the corner from my daughter's house that's where the Russians shot him. But they never saw the body because my daughter evacuated. So she doesn't know her husband's dead. In fact, her 16-year-old son doesn't know doesn't know his father's dead. Um, how am I going to tell them? My God. Yeah, and she kept on saying, "Why, why? He was such a good father. He loved his son so much. His son loved loved him so much." Oh, sorry. Yeah. Don't apologise, Dan. I mean, this is... It's... It was... Zenaida was now, was now sort of preparing to... preparing to tell her daughter. So just a few metres from Zenaida's house was a modern new build apartment block. That building was further away from the road than most of the other houses. So immediately looking at it, it didn't look like it had been that badly damaged. It still had a roof, for example, and, and walls. And there's like a communal porch and you have apartments on the left, apartments on the right as you walk in. But you walk in and then you see, actually, okay, yeah, all the windows are smashed and the curtains are hanging out of the windows, as are appliances and all sorts of things. And it's pretty dead. There doesn't seem to be anyone there, but Zenaida said, oh, yes, there are two people living there. <laughs> okay. They lived there the whole time, and they're still living there. So we go in there, and there was a man on the left. He was in the window of the ground floor apartment and said, oh, hello, I'm a journalist, and he didn't want any of it. He just said, you see my beard? He said, it was a very grey beard. He said, my beard was black before this happened. We've been in hell. Hmm. This road is hell. And then his wife actually came out of a different apartment. They warmed up as we talked to them. 
and they actually became extremely friendly. And he talked to us about his experience that they didn't have a basement, so they stayed in their flat, which they'd only bought three or four months previously, having moved from Kiev. They saved up for this nice apartment, this very quiet street in this very quiet town, and then this happened. But because they'd sold their place in Kiev, they had nowhere to go. There were eight families living in these apartments, and they were the only couple left. Everyone else had fled, but they had absolutely nowhere to go, so they stayed. Miraculous, really, that they did survive. And how did they survive? Like, how did they get through those weeks of Russian occupation? One of their coping mechanisms had been to clean the communal porch every day. Clean it of the glass and the hot metal and bits of shelling and the bullet casings and all the rest of it. And Ivan said, oh, you see that apartment block? And he just pointed behind him. Maybe a mile away. It was quite a way away. He said, there's a sniper in there and he didn't like that we weren't scared, that we did this every day that we were trying to do something for our people. So he was obviously getting very angry, and he kept on shooting over our heads. But we weren't scared, and we carried on. And then he invited me to have a look into his neighbour's apartment, and it was as if a sort of elephant stomped through it. It was just all smashed up. And Russian soldiers were using this particular apartment to eat and drink and, and whatever. I even pointed to the Russian soldiers' blood on the floor because they'd obviously been injured. There was quite a lot of blood. Fresh, still wet. It was a horrible... Horrible scene. But in Congress was that on the stairs were some photographs of children, obviously the, the kids who'd lived there with their mum and dad, and the photographs were smashed, but they actually, they'd been put to one side. So they weren't ruined. And I don't know who did that, whether it was the Russians or, I don't know, but that was number 27 on Voxana Street. Dan, how many civilians do we think were killed in Butcher? They estimate about 300 have been killed in Butcher, but I suspect they'll find more because there's talk of mass graves and there's talk of bodies being burnt to hide what's happened. So we have estimates of how many people have died, but I don't think we really have a true grasp of what happened. What you're talking about here is a crime scene on a scale that's hard to comprehend. And the thing I keep thinking is, why? Why were these people killed? Do you think it was random? Soldiers just losing their tempers and taking out their frustrations on unlucky people? Or was it something more systematic, a deliberate effort to try to cleanse this town? I don't think there was a policy of Russian soldiers sort of abusing and executing people. Because speaking to the people on that Fox Alna Street, they didn't talk about being beaten or anything like that. There weren't any executions of, of the people on that street. It was elsewhere that that sort of thing happened, and I think it was out of fear. A mass grave has been reported in a churchyard, and the bodies of five men, who apparently died with their hands tied behind their backs, were found in a basement. This image shows a shallow grave in Motagine, south and west of Bucha. Three of the bodies have been identified as those of the village mayor, her husband, and her son. I mean, these Russians were doomed. They were undermanned, they were under strength, they didn't have a proper strategy. They'd expected to be welcomed with flowers, and instead they'd be welcomed with very heavy artillery. This was not how it was meant to pan out. And so I think they turned very quickly on the people they thought were at fault for it not turning out how they thought it was going to turn out. And then I think you've got, in any army, you'll have brutish people. So I think some of it was just that. It was just fear 
and then kind of a policy of shoot first, ask questions later, if ask questions at all. Coming up, what can be done to hold the perpetrators of war crimes accountable? Patrick Winter, you're The Guardian's diplomatic editor, and we've watched this wave of revulsions spread across the world this week in response to stories like the ones that Dan's been telling us. On Tuesday, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, addressed the United Nations. I now give the floor to His Excellency, Mr. Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. Dear Madam, what did he tell them about these atrocities? Well, I think as he's been trying to do to every parliament he's been speaking to, he's been trying to underline the urgency and the need for action really on three fronts, further armaments, further sanctions, and an attempt to bring the Russian leadership to book in some legal form, either International Criminal Court or another form. But I think the horror of these killings gave an added urgency. Some people were shot on the streets, he said, limbs cut off, throats slashed, civilians crushed by tanks for the pleasure of Russian soldiers. Women were raped and killed in front of their children, he said. At one point in his address, he accused Russia of genocide, which is a very specific crime, which is an attempt to erase the Ukrainian people. He suggested the UN Security Council should either expel Russia or admit that it really was a toothless body. Has the time of international law ended, he said? If the answer is no, then action is needed now. Because the UN Security Council has been hampered now for more than a decade by the ability of Russia or one other country to use its veto. So it's left the UN very much on the sidelines or as a platform from which people can make these pleas for justice, but it doesn't have really much impact. Okay, that's the kind of strong response you'd expect from the Ukrainian president. But what have others had to say? What about Joe Biden's administration in the US? Have they also called it evidence of genocide? They haven't gone quite that far but they've all definitely called it a war crime. You may remember I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. Well, the truth of the matter, you saw what happened to Putin. This warrants him, he is a war criminal. But there's been no holding back by Biden at any point in the last month. I mean, he's called him a butcher and a killer. So there's not really many more avenues of rhetorical offence to give towards Putin by Biden. You say that the US doesn't have much more to say about Putin that they haven't already said. What about concrete measures? Have they announced anything new to try to punish the Russian leader? Yes, they're going to be extending sanctions so that there can be no further investment of any kind in Russia. I think they're going to extend sanctions to two of the larger banks, Sherbank and Alpha Bank. And there'll be more individual oligarchs, as we still call them, who are going to be sanctioned. So there will be things that the Americans are doing, but they're being very cautious because they really don't want to be seen to be America, Uncle Sam Brown beating Europe into doing something it doesn't want to do of its own volition. And they're allowing other countries within Europe to put the pressure on the so-called backmarkers on all these issues, such as Germany and Italy. And they're leaving that to Poland and the UK to put the pressure on. 
Yeah, there are lots of fine lines to walk here. And the EU and UK have been trying to walk their own, which is to condemn the Russians, to try to punish them, but to do their absolute best not to get drawn into the fighting. What have they said? Well, Boris Johnson, for instance, has said what he's seen so far to him represents something not far short of genocide. What Putin has done in Ukraine, which, you know, doesn't look far short of genocide to me, it is no wonder that people are responding in the way that they are. And for the Foreign Office to allow the Prime Minister to make a statement like that is quite significant because the Foreign Office is very particular about when the term genocide is used or not. Patrick, Ukraine has been making very specific demands of NATO all through this war for new weapons and no-fly zone. Will these scenes from Butcher prompt any movement on those questions? Is it a game-changer in that way? It's clear that there's not going to be, and this is a line that's been drawn for weeks, and it's not going to change regardless of whatever happens in Ukraine, unless possibly there's a chemical attack. There will be no NATO troops in Ukraine. There will be no fly zone in Ukraine. So what there will be is a stepping up of the amount of weapons given to the Ukrainians. I think the slightly false distinction between lethal offensive weapons and lethal defensive weapons has gone. There won't be probably airplanes, but we're now talking about the Czechs sending tanks and we've also seen all these anti-tank missiles. So there'll be more weapons and there will be more sanctions. And I think there is a sense that Germany is being pushed again to go further. It's been very reluctant to do sanctions on gas or on oil or coal imports. But it's certainly going to move on coal, but that's the least financially either to Germany or to Russia. Uh, But the Germans just cannot see a way to impose an immediate ban on Russian gas imports. And that is the kind of critical issue because that's funding so much of the Russian war machine. And it's really interesting that the UK has been saying the G7 has to set a timetable for phasing out all Russian gas, oil and coal. The emphasis is on the timetable, not that it must be done immediately, but they really want to tie the Germans down if they can. Okay, Patrick, and what about the Russians? How have they tried to explain these things that we've been seeing this week? Well, what they do, which is what they did in Syria, is to say they're all faked and staged. Russia's ambassador to the UN labelled Zelensky's words lies. The Ukrainians, he said, are killing their own people. But they are very nervous about this issue. This is the most visible war we've ever had. And I think some of the evidence that's been put forward by independent journalists and by agencies is very, very powerful. While analysing satellite imagery taken on the 19th of March, it's clear the bodies have been lying in the open for weeks and critically, during the time Russian forces occupied the town. We've compared and I think the audience that Russia is nervous about is not the West, which is a lost cause from its point of view, but these kind of swing countries like just Turkey, India, to a degree, United Arab Emirates and China. And they are watching anxiously what those countries are saying about what's happened. Most of those countries are now at least calling for an independent investigation, and they have been very critical of what's happened. And that will make Russia nervous. 
Ironically, we seem to have got to a stage where Putin is ever more popular inside Russia than the suggestion that was around, say, two, three weeks ago that there was a big anti-war movement and that Putin might be toppled. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case. His popularity is on the rise. And it's just a sort of function of the way in which we all live in our own information bubbles and Russia's managed to construct a very hermetically sealed information bubble. So it's not a game changer inside Russia. It will just be seen as a kind of smear by the West. It is interesting, though, that the graphic nature of what we've seen, that the horror of it has had some effect on these swing countries like India, the UAE and Turkey. And we saw yesterday that the UN General Assembly voted to kick Russia off the Human Rights Council. Now, Zelensky is pushing further. He wants war crime charges. But what makes something a war crime and not just terrible, but not necessarily criminal? Well, a war crime does have a legal definition, which the International Criminal Court would be able to argue that both civilians have been improperly injured or executed without any form of justice, and that also what has happened is disproportionate. I mean, there is a sort of corpus of law which would pretty well put this straight up the path of uh, war crime. But I think some of these kind of arguments about whether it's a war crime or whether it's genocide is slightly to one side. The real issue is whether you can get anyone responsible to be brought in front of a relevant international court at some point. And I think that's going to be very hard, partly because of the way in which Russia would always use its veto on the Security Council to prevent those kinds of inquiries happening. There's been some talk about whether you could set up an ad hoc special court where you could look at the issue of crime of aggression, and that would be more akin to the kind of Nuremberg trial where you do actually go after the leaders, but that is a very ad hoc body. And again, you do need the support of the UN to give it the authority that's required. But the UN is hamstrung, and we've seen that in Syria. There was clearly examples of use of chemical weapons, and ultimately the Russians managed to veto most of the inquiries that were going to be conducted by the UN. We've been living for... A decade in this age of impunity, which I think is a phrase that David Miliband, the former Labour Foreign Secretary, coined, and uh, we really haven't found a way out of it. Dan, the sight of bodies in these streets was so horrible and really felt like a new stage in this conflict. Like, even though we've been hearing and seeing similar stories of death and atrocities from cities like Kharkiv, Mariupol, Kherson, what is it about what's happened in places like Bucha that is so shocking, that feels like such an escalation? I think it's the arrogance, the complete lack of pity, the perception clearly of the Russian soldier in many of these cases that those lives didn't matter, that they were worthless. You know, these aren't militarily necessary deaths. An elderly man talking back to a Russian soldier didn't need to die. So yes, I think that complete lack of any possible justification, you know, there's just no way you can square it. Yeah, I think that's what makes it cut through. And Butcher was just one of about 30 suburbs that have been retaken around Kyiv. And of course, Russia controls big swaths of territory in the east and in the south. If the Russians ever do leave these places, what are we going to find there? Well, yeah, Uh, yeah, horrors that I don't think we really want to 
contemplate. I mean, I think there's much more to be found around Kiev. We've got to hope that maybe in the East, where they've had more success, they've not become as desperate or fearful. But from places like Mariupol, where they were fearful and desperate and they weren't winning, well, if they were winning, they weren't winning quickly enough. I know I've already had many accounts from Mariupol which are just beyond the imagination for the way people were living down there and what they were suffering. So sadly, I think there's an awful lot of horror to come. Dan Boffy, thank you so much for your reporting and for talking to us about it. My pleasure. Thanks. That was Daniel Boffy speaking from Kyiv. Thank you so much to him. You can read all his coverage from Ukraine, including his story about Voxalna Street at theguardian.com. Guardian correspondent Sean Walker visited another newly retaken area further to the east called Trostianets, where he found evidence of summary executions, torture and systematic looting during the month it was occupied. And his piece is also at the Guardian website. Before we go, if you haven't already, go and subscribe to Politics Weekly US, the Guardian's new podcast for dedicated coverage of American politics. It's hosted by former Washington correspondent and Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland, and it's out every Friday. That's Politics Weekly US, available wherever you listen to this podcast. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Mithley Rao. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.